0: we exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame, we believe that he is due, and so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. But the reason that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church, is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures. That we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids' ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read. We do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home. That we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared, hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence.
1: Philippians
2: 2, 5-8 Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this morning, we are continuing our study uh, this this Advent series looking at the doctrine of the incarnation. So we're, we're hoping to spend four weeks here examining this this glorious, this beautiful doctrine that we call the incarnation. Our hope is to look look at four different angles of the incarnation. So last week we we saw the incarnation as revelation from Sam. What is what does the incarnation teach? Or the incarnation as humility. So uh, what, what does Jesus' humiliation say about the incarnation? Then the week after that, Pastor Josh will, will talk to us about the incarnation and in glory. Right? Because Jesus didn't just come in humility, he comes in glory. And then the last week, Pastor Sam or Pastor Adam will, will walk us through the incarnation as salvation. So so four different aspects of this this beautiful uh Christian-defining doctrine called the Incarnation. As I was studying for my sermon this week, I was reading through a few books, um, some old, some new, reading through a few sermons, some old, some new, about the Incarnation. And uh, I posted about one, you might have seen it. One of the books that I read this week, just in preparation for the sermon, was is a very old book by a church father named Athanasius called On the Incarnation. It's, it's a very good book. I posted that. I, I would recommend you read it. Uh, there's a particular translation that's that's a little bit easier than other translations, and in that there's a bunch of versions. But in that particular version, C.S. Lewis actually writes the foreword, right? So C.S. Lewis, wanting to champion classic Christian, foreword
1: and gives an theology. One of the On the incarnation. Lewis, he says, For my own than the devotional books. I rather happens when they sit down or Through a bit tough a... to be had at wrestling through tough bits of theology, so you can right. He's getting at. Cold and stale and, f- And in fact, doctrinal books in this particular series hold up the doctrine, the Christian. and salvation and we can just I think even those of us who don't consider ourselves theologians and we do a very countercultural thing focus on his work What will end up happening blaze, and hungry for his glory.
2: To a doctrine that ignites your heart in worship. That's what we're after. So let's pray to that end and jump in.
1: Find that Sam said in his... Confession is just God and A slave to the culture, a slave to the
2: As we're servants to all these things, Lord, we can't help but confess your goodness in the incarnation of Jesus i going to taste your
1: goodness. Don't let this it seeps into the deepest parts of our
2: You, We need you. Be with us this morning as we look at your text, talk about your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Philippians. If you haven't already gotten there, let me give you a little bit of a caveat just to cover myself. This isn't going to be a typical Sunday morning. So typically we just open up a text and we walk straight through it. I am going to walk through and unpack some of Philippians 2, but this is primarily, I'm primarily using Philippians 2 to launch into a larger doctrinal discussion about the incarnation and humility. Okay. Can you give me grace this morning to do that? Good. Thank you. Philippians 2. Let's read it one more time. Verse 5. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let us begin this examination of this passage with a very simple but controversial statement. The statement is this, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. Contrary to what the culture might tell you he is, or what your history books might tell you he is, if they are not confessing that he is God, they're wrong. This verse adds to the arsenal of verses that attest to that exact fact. He was in the form of God. So it isn't the case then that Jesus had enough of the divine attributes to be considered technically God, right? He didn't qualify by meeting five of the eight of them. No, Jesus has all of the attributes, all of the perfection that the Father shares. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father and therefore, like the Father, is all-powerful, is all-knowing, is timeless, has life in himself, and we could go on. But he shares in these perfections of the father. This, this might not seem like an important note to make here, but it's going to be very important as we read the next sentence. Look at verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men before we jump into what the Incarnation speaks to humility, let, let's give a brief moment to talk about what the Incarnation is not. And, and I do this in hopes to fix uh, a, a pretty popular line of thought in modern Christianity. And listen, what I'm about to say, you might, you might intellectually say, of course I don't think that, but I think a lot of us functionally fall into this problem. And the problem is this hearing that he emptied himself as some way or somehow leaving behind his divinity. All right, that's a very popular idea, that Jesus is leaving behind his divinity and trading it in for humanity in the incarnation. And hear me very clearly, this is not how we should think of the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus doesn't leave behind his divinity He doesn't even suspend his divinity, nor does he leave behind some aspects of his divinity. No, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, every day of it, is still divine. The incarnation isn't a story of subtracting divinity or trading divinity in for humanity. Rather, it is the story of God and the addition of humanity. So, so think about this for a moment, okay? Let's, let's do some theology for a second. Right? Be theologians with me. Think about how crazy this is. The incarnation. This should be somewhat offensive to your Christian understanding of God. And I mean that in a good way. Right? Well, what's happening in the incarnation is actually mind-boggling. Okay? The one Jesus, the one who is timeless and eternal, is birthed. The one who is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, is now confined by skin and bones. The one who has life in himself. We call this the doctrine of aseity. He has life in himself. He doesn't need someone to give him life. He has life in himself, but now he has a mother. The one who is all-knowing, the Bible describes as growing in wisdom. The one who is all-powerful, who sets the stars in place and tells the oceans where to stop, is now reliant on his mother for food and sustenance. Right, this is remarkable. Right, just these idea alone is enough to spend the rest of your life just marveling at this work that we call the Incarnation. This is why in one short sentence, the London preacher C.H. Spurgeon captures something of the wonder of the incarnation when he said, the infinite became an infant. This humiliating paradox should lead us to worship, yet it doesn't start, it doesn't stop with just this divine paradox of his perfections. There is another breathtaking aspect, and that's when we look at the humiliation of his humanity. The breathtaking aspect of the incarnation becomes apparent once we place the humiliation of his humanity in context with what's happening in the, in the life of the people of Israel. You see the people of Israel thought what they were getting when you compare what they thought they were getting compared to what they actually got it becomes staggering. You see, as far back as the time of Moses in Egypt, the people of Israel have been ethnically and politically persecuted. Even in Egypt alone, think about this. They're slaves for 400 years, this people group. And they're servants of Pharaoh for four centuries. Their life is a life of servanthood, of slavery. And it doesn't stop there in Egypt, does it? If you know your Old Testament's, The story progresses. The story of of more and more persecution, more and more uh, aboundedness, of servanthood, and you eventually get to a very important year in the history of Israel, the year 931. The year 931 AD, so 930 years before Christ is born, is a very important year in the history of Israel. What happens in 931? I'm glad you asked. What happens in 931 is that the kingdom of Israel splits into two. Right, Solomon's sons have a bit of a feud, there's a political unrest, and the nation of Israel splits into two different kingdoms. So we go from a united kingdom to a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Right, from this moment on, 931 on, they now have separate paths, separate rulers, separate kings, but they're still the people of Israel, right? This is still ethnically Israel. So, 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 in the Bible, let me teach you a biblical studies term. There's a term in, in, that we use in biblical studies, okay? The regnal formula. It's just a fancy Bible term of, of, of describing how the Bible talks about its kings. And it works something like this. If you read 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, it works something like this. So and so became king in the year so and so. Such and such, I guess, not. Years can't be so-and-so. I don't know how that works. (laughs) So-and-so became king in the year such-and-such and and reigned for such-and-such period of time. And then it ends like this. They either did what's evil in the sight of the Lord or they did what's good in the sight of the Lord. Right? So king blank became king in the year blank and he reigned for blank amount of years and he did good in the sight of the Lord. So when we look at the two kingdoms, right, Israel and Judah, Together, they have 39 kings. Israel has 19, and Judah has 20. Do you see that math? 19 and 20. Let's look at the, let's look at the northern kingdom alone. Out of the 19, 19 kings of Israel, if we look at the regnal formula of their lineage of kings, how many of them do you think did well in the sight of the Lord? Zero. Zero out of 19 kings did well in the sight of the Lord. For the northern kingdom of Israel. And guess what happens? The next important day in your Old Testament is 722 BC. So 931, the kingdom splits israel Judah. 722, that the wickedness of the king and the wickedness of the people lead God to send the country of Assyria to take the northern kingdom captive. And guess what? Just like in the time of Egypt, they're now servants and slaves to Assyria. How does the southern kingdom do? Do they do any better? Yes, barely. They do better, barely. Right? They, if the, the, the northern kingdom had 19 kings, the southern has 20. Scholars are at a bit of a disagreement exactly how many did good in the sight of the Lord. Most say two, some say five. All right, so let's just be gracious and side with those scholars who think five. All right, so five of 20 did right in the sight of the Lord. Right, so we're, we're 5 of 39 here, and the kings of Israel. And guess what? Actually, the people were so wicked in Judah that they, the third important day of your Old Testament, 931, the kingdom splits, 722, the northern kingdom's taken over, and then 587 BC, 587 years before Jesus comes, Babylon comes and takes over Judah. So here we are again, the people of Israel, in servanthood, in bondage. In slavery, right? Warning after warning from the prophets, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from all of the prophets, and they don't listen. The kings are wicked, the people are wicked, and there they find themselves in captivity. And it doesn't stop. We we draw closer to the New Testament. There becomes an empire that that
1: an empire.
2: And the Jewish people, that the people of under Rome doesn't get any better. They are still oppressed by the people of Rome. Throughout all of this, all of the, we we just covered about a thousand years of history. Good job. Throughout all of this, there's there's these stories, right? The promise of the Messiah to come, right? In all of this slavery and servanthood and oppression, and political unrest, and cultural turmoil. There's the promise of the Messiah to come. However, often the stories of the coming Redeemer, who is going to save them, were tales of a political warrior who comes in power to once and for all trample on the other empires who would dare threaten the nation of Israel. So you can feel it, can't you? You can feel it. Given the context, when we place the incarnation chronologically in the people of Israel, you can feel the, the angst, the turmoil, the utter, hear me, the utter disappointment and humiliation when He comes. The long-awaited One. For centuries and even millennia, the promise of His arrival was told from father to child, from father to child the long-awaited one, and here he is, a feeble, baby, a feeble baby born to an unwed virgin teenager in an animal's slot bucket. Moreover, our text said that he took the form of a servant. He was in the form of God, and he took the form of a servant. Could you imagine how offensive that is to the people of Israel who have lived thousands of years as the form of a servant? They're not looking for a servant to join them in their service. They're looking for a savior to come conquer on their behalf. So when he's born in this humiliating way, it isn't good news to them. The scandal that this one from Nazareth, a town of no good, could possibly be the Messiah is absolutely preposterous. And we know Given the story of Jesus, that the humiliating, the humiliating and unimpressive nature of his ministry doesn't stop with his birth, does it? No. This man is consistently unimpressive, right? Consistently humble, consistently living in humiliation. Jesus, being from unimpressive parents, from an unimpressive town, born in unimpressive circumstances, is only magnified as he grows. Why? Well, the first people Jesus reveals his miracles to are servants at a wedding in Canaan. The first person Jesus reveals his true uh, messianic identity to is the woman who is sexually promiscuous at the well. Jesus was followed by a band of unimpressive brothers. He dines with the poor and spends time with the needy. During his final week on earth, right, as he's entering Jerusalem, which we, by the way, we call the triumphal entry, he's riding a donkey. It's unimpressive. On that week, he's mocked, beaten, and betrayed. One event after another speaks to the humility that Christ displays throughout his incarnation. Our text today speaks of one more humiliating event, however, so read verse 8 with me. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so just imagine this. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew who's been told that this man is the coming Messiah. By the climax of his humiliation... The climax of humiliation during Jesus' earthly ministry is that a man from Nazareth, born of Mary, grows up and instead of conquering Rome via political power, he's executed by Rome via the embarrassing death of being hung as a traitor on a Roman cross. So he didn't conquer Rome. He's conquered by Rome. All this desire, this millennia, of anticipation that the Messiah would come and politically free our people. He's here, and he's conquered by Rome. You could see then why Corinthians says the gospel is a stumbling block for the Jew. The idea that this man, given the life he's lived and the death he's died, could be the one who would redeem Israel is unthinkable. Yet we know how the story ends, right? We know that this seemingly unimpressive work of the feeble baby born in a manger was more, much more than the undoing of Rome. It was much more than the undoing of political powers. It was much more than the undoing of cultural unrest. Yes, that unimpressive life lived by the man from Nazareth would be more powerful than just political empires. It has proved to be more powerful than sin and death. Jesus the God-man in his person and work through his incarnate ministry and his traitor's death has turned the world upside down. He conquered by being conquered. He He put death to death by being put to death. He's proved to be the Lord of life by being slain in death. This is why the incarnation is beautiful. Right, when we compare what Israel wanted out of the Messiah compared to what they got. Or they wanted a Messiah who would save the nation of Israel from political oppression. What they got was a baby born of Nazareth who would save not just Israel, but also Gentiles from sin and death. Much bigger scope, much bigger importance. The Christian story is one of power through weakness. And there is perhaps no better place to witness this glorious reality than in the doctrine of the Incarnation. So then, what are we to do with this news of Christ's humiliation in the Incarnation? What are we to do with it? How should it impact our daily lives? I'm glad you asked. I have three ways. It should be said, it would be very hard to exhaust a list of the ways the Incarnation practically impacts our lives, but I have 16 minutes counting down, and so I've chosen three. First, also, I'm going the way of Sam here. It's Pastor Sam. I actually have, like, practical things. Instead of just marvel at the Incarnation, you should just assume that whenever we preach, marveling at the Gospel is one of the implications. But here's three other ones. The Incarnation the story of Christ's humility and his humiliation should propel you to gospel-fueled missions. What we have in Philippians 2, in this story, and indeed in the incarnation itself, is a God who saw our helpless estate and instead of insisting on his own rights, he stepped into our mess for our good. So then if we want to be Christ-like, If we want to have the posture of the Christian, the posture of a Christian then is one who, like their master, lays down their own rights, lays down their own entitlements, and steps into the mess of others in order to pursue the good of their brothers and sisters. This is our Christmas series, as I've said. So I hope this is a Christmas kind of message for you. I even, look how Christmas I am. I told Kristen this morning as I was picking out my outfit to preach in, I said, I'm going to subliminally be very Christmassy because our carpet is red and I'm going to wear a green shirt. (laughs) So if this is our Christmas series, what of Christmas and the humiliation of the incarnation? Well, one of my heroes of the faith, J.I. Packer, said this, the Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, giving trouble, giving care and concern, to do good to others, and not just their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. That's the Christmas spirit. So moreover, it is... is the realities of the incarnation that will not just propel you to missions, but keep you on mission, right? I've preached this text before a couple of years ago, and this was the primary point of that particular sermon was, look, there are a lot of reasons to be on mission today, whether that means, going overseas and doing missions that way or sharing the gospel with your neighbor or whatever, ha- what, 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 what have you. There's a lot of reasons to be on mission and that the primary ones that I see our culture using are something like fear, shame, and guilt, right? We'll show you pictures of pot-bellied African children to get you over to Africa to do something about it, right? We will guilt you into sharing the gospel with your neighbor, right? Pressing and pressing so hard on obligation that you felt compelled to walk to your neighbor's door by guilt. Or fear, right? Well, I've seen fear be used as a tactic to propel missions. Right? Christians do this, and if you're not doing this, then are you really a Christian? But hear me, these, these, these modes, fear, guilt, manipulation, they might get you on mission, but they pro- I promise you, they will do a lousy job keeping you there. A lousy job. Only a clear vision of the one who made himself nothing, that we might have everything, will keep us faithful in our delightful duties of being ambassadors of reconciliation. Two. In light of the incarnation and in light of our current cultural context, it seems wise to give a word of warning to those of us who might be bent on pursuing the path of ascent. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus' movements throughout his life were one of descent. Jesus had downward mobility throughout his days. It was embarrassing and countercultural in the first century And it is indeed embarrassing and countercultural today. I fear that many people, myself included, without a doubt, are hungry for the applause of man. And in the path of gaining humanly recognition, we've pursued a path that makes much of ourselves and little of others. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be ambitious and shouldn't work hard and shouldn't try to do great things. In fact, I think Christians are the exact people who should do that. And in our pursuit of being ambitious and doing great things, if God happens to grant honor, then so be it. But we're not after honor nor the recognition of our fellow man. We're after, in the Christmas spirit, the good of others and the glory of God. So I'm not saying you shouldn't be ambitious and work hard. I'm saying that we do well to beware a path that would have us moving in an opposite direction than Jesus himself took. If in our path of ascent, we pass Jesus and his path of descent. We should look out. Three. Our last point. Finally. Something that I could not get out of my head as I was writing this particular sermon. As I was thinking about the utter humiliation of Jesus in the incarnation. What kept striking me is that on this side of the resurrection and ascension. We are anticipating another coming of Jesus, are we not? And let me just admit to you, uh, I am bad at this. I, I told, we had a, a little pastor's Christmas party just a couple of days ago, and I-, I confessed to the pastors that I'm really bad at what the Advent season is supposed to be for. It's like building up of anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. I'm really bad at that. I, I don't feel it. I don't think about the incarnation any more than I typically do. Uh, I- it typically doesn't really impact my prayer life. Uh, I never finish Advent devotionals. I just can't do it. I'm, I'm bad at this season. But I was working on this particular sermon. What kept striking me is the second anticipation of Jesus will not be like the first coming of Jesus. As we feel that burning anticipation of the return of our Savior, which I hope you feel. I hope I feel I pray that I'll feel it. I pray that you would feel it as as that grows in us. What we await is much different than a lowly baby in a manger without stepping too far into the territory of next week. It's important to remember that Jesus, second coming will be one of splendor act two of Jesus won't take place in the manger rather Revelation speaks of his coming back with his robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth to judge the living and the dead. This is a different scene than the baby in the manger. Friends, he is coming back in power. In power and majesty and splendor and glory. He's coming again. You don't have to be a whack job on a soapbox with a megaphone on a street corner to say that Jesus is coming. He's coming again, and He's coming in power. And the good news is He's coming for His bride. He's coming for His bride. And he will come back for us and we will feast with him. And hear me, the second coming of Jesus coming back in power could only be good news to the church if his first coming of humiliation takes place. We cannot welcome the second coming of Jesus coming back with power to judge the living and the dead if we do not find ourselves in the midst of those who have clung to him by faith through his death on the cross and resurrection. That's what makes the second coming good news. Otherwise, friends, it is terrifying news. And here, let me just speak frankly. If you're in the room and that doesn't describe you, you aren't one who has placed faith in Jesus and has clung to him as Savior. Listen, the day will come. You will not escape that day when all that you have done is bare before Christ. And on that day, if you say culturally, I was considered a good person, God help you. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Cling to him by faith. As I was writing this sermon, I couldn't get the final stanza of a hip-hop song out of my mind. A hip-hop song by Beautiful Eulogy. They have a song that so beautifully describes the worthiness of Jesus. Just listen to this as we talk about the second coming of Christ. Listen to how beautiful this is. They say this. There is a space between us, and it is a right divide, the distance between the depths of your worthiness and mine. Mine is derivative. All my works come from thine. I am merely a man, but all thy works divine. I abide only as a branch attached to the vine that grows the beautiful fruit that gets crushed into wine. I am the least deserving, made worthy to touch his feet, the servant that did nothing to earn a seat at the wedding feast. I'm a created being, you've created everything. You make footstools of fools and galaxies your rings. You are Christ the consummate, my hope and every confidence, worthy to receive praise from every man. Die to self and to offer my obedience. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the son of man. Worthy is the one who takes the scrolls from his holy hand. Where angels and elders and living creatures all fall. And worship the highest king, the most worthy of all. That's who's coming back. That's where our anticipation this week, this, this month, this season is building. When the worthy one comes back for his bride. And all those who have been united to him in his death will be united to him in his resurrection. That's what we anticipate this season. So Christian, hear me. He is worthy of praise because of his humanity. He is worthy of praise because of his divinity. He is worthy of praise because of his humility. And he is worthy of praise because of his glory. My prayer for you as we, as we close is that you would marvel at the worthiness of God, the Son incarnate. Let's pray. God, it, it, it feels it feels like it shouldn't even be real that we get to come to you right now. Lord, that, that the, the, the creature could could petition to the creator and that the creator would actually hear. Lord, but we we, we participate in this blood bought right to say thank you. Lord, thank you for seeing our helpless estate. Thank you, Jesus, for not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And thank you for emptying yourself. Thank you for for being born in the likeness of men. And thank you for taking the form of a servant. Lord, feeble words like thank you feel eternally insignificant for what you've done. But it's what we have to offer. We thank you by giving you our lives. Lord, make us obedient as you were obedient. We thank you for giving, we, we, we thank you by giving you our, our material and our effort and, and whatever you would have us do, Lord, we want to do it in obedience. Lord, would you would you give us, give me this Advent season a burning desire for your return? Lord, what we want more than anything is to see you face to face. So we, we, we pray, come, long expected Jesus, come. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every week we end our time in communion. And uh, we do that so that you, you every week, uh, if you remember the song we sang last, if the gospel is all we have, we want the gospel as many times as possible. And so you've verbally heard the gospel and we want to visually demonstrate the gospel. So we would, we would invite believers to come and come down this side, partake of the bread and juice and go up this side. If you are a non-believer, we would ask that you not participate or if you haven't clung to christ by faith we would ask you not to participate because what this would be for you is a hollow religious activity and that's not what we're about gospel-fueled and gospel-fueled christianity is not about hollow religious activity so if you're a believer who's clung to christ by faith join us we love you church thanks for being with us
0: thank you for watching this amaze kc podcast more information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.